Sounds good. Uh, my name is Maricos, and I have started a company called Steadfast Provisions. We're based in Oregon. Um, all of the beef in the pemmican comes from a ranch in central Oregon. And I'm located in Corvallis, Oregon, which is in the middle of the Willamette Valley. Um, and I've lived here for off and on for about eight years and love being close to the land, close to livestock and cattle and uh, also close to the forest. I like to go hiking and exploring and get up in the Cascade Mountains whenever I can. Yeah, it sounds like your rooster is really validating what you said. Oh, yeah, the rooster. <laughs> I, I hope he doesn't uh, disturb our conversation here. That's Archie, the rooster. <laughs> nice. I love it. Um, yeah, so I guess the reason we're talking today is like, yeah, like you're saying you make pemmican. Um, I started, I guess I found out about pemmican years ago. I was going backpacking and I was like, I don't want to eat ramen and Fritos and just like just empty carbs the entire time. So I was looking around for other options and I really couldn't find much. And I found pemmican at a grocery store, natural grocers. I don't know if you guys have that up there. And um, I bought a couple bars and it was kind of like, yeah, this is kind of okay. Then kind of got used to it and I started to like it. And I realized like how much better it is for you and how much better you feel eating that versus um, just like junk food, essentially. So do you want to give a quick little background on like what pemmican is? Yeah. So the way I like to introduce pemmican is by talking about what it does. It's the one complete natural food that's always ready anywhere. And so it's a food that's always ready to go. It doesn't need cooking. It doesn't need any preparation. It's super lightweight and it keeps not quite forever, but for years and years and years. Uh, so it's a really unique food. Um, and it essentially it's in its simplest form, it's just dried meat mixed with fat. So very pure protein and fat. And if you went back in time, 250 years to the uh, upper Great Plains, like North Dakota, um, you would find Lakota Sioux people living through the entire winter eating essentially just pemmican, just dried beef or dried bison in their case mixed with uh, rendered fat. <clears throat> so it's very, it's a very uh, simple and yet powerful food uh, that has an ancient legacy that we are trying to uh, revive here at Steadfast Provisions. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. And it makes a lot of sense too. like the plains are freezing cold in the winter, especially like the northern parts. And then it's like you're not finding any sort of plant material to eat. So you're clearly eating like nutrient dense food that you can like keep through the winter, which would be like a fat and protein source. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so reliable and so nourishing, really. That's the one of the things that caught my eyes. The first time I learned about pemmican was seeing that people lived on it for months just pemmican nothing else and i've people always ask you like if you had to live on one food for the rest of your life what would it be and i would probably choose a ribeye steak you know but if i were on the move at all or living in a teepee i would choose pemmican you know because it's it's like a ribeye steak that you could bring anywhere and eat anytime essentially yeah, I was doing a little bit of research and it seems like it packs down almost like like four pounds of fresh meat makes about a pound of pemmican or am I off on that a little bit? Yeah, it, it sort of, it depends on which cut you're using and mm -hmm. how dry you make it. Um, if you make it really bone dry, you'll lose like 75% of the weight from the fresh meat. 
Um, typically when you dehydrate, you leave a little bit of moisture. So it ends, you end up losing about two thirds. So let's say uh, the pemmican, if you're doing 50-50 meat and fat, the meat loses two thirds and the fat when you render it loses about a quarter of the weight. So if you have two pounds, you have one pound of fat. So you've started with one point, whatever, 1.333 pounds um, of fat. And then you have three pounds of lean. So four and a third becomes two pounds. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's too much math, <laughs> but I've clearly I've run these numbers in my own mind a lot. Um, anyways, it's it's about it's a little more than than double concentrated. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Then yeah, there's like a very nutrient dense bar, right? Of like fat and protein plus all the like the vitamins and minerals that are in uh, beef and or bison, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know. I've learned so much through the development of this, this product and eating it so much. And one of the things is that I think that the way that nutrition approaches micronutrients is probably wrong. Um, and a lot more complex than we can imagine, because when I ate only pemmican, you know, I did a nutrition analysis of the pemmican that we make. And it said that there was like, you know, in, in 2000 calories worth, there was something like 15% of the potassium that you need in a day. And that was the case for all these minerals, but I did it for a month and had no imbalances, no problems at all. So I don't really know what's going on because I didn't get my recommended daily value of like, you know, all these vitamins and minerals, but I was doing great. And I was doing, you know, much better actually after a month. And so there's something going on with meat that that can nutritionally really go a long ways in ways that we don't really understand yet. Yeah. So you you basically say pemmican, you say bars all day, every well, not all day, but like that's all you ate for a month, right? Yes. Although when I did the month long, I used um, the brick instead of a bar. So this is a two pound brick and that brick has about 7,000 calories of worth of pemmican. And so that, um, that, you know, that lasts about three days. So I just cut off chunks there. So yeah. not bars, but all pemmican. And, and it was, I was eating about a pound and a half per day. Dang, it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot. Cause I was exercising a lot. <laughs> you know? yeah that's super interesting though because i know like i know you've heard about but, like michaela peterson and like jordan peterson for example are like big proponents of like these meat only diets because it helped them like heal so much it's pretty fascinating and like i don't know the specifics either but i've just read a lot of stuff about how like eating a higher carb diet can block absorption of some minerals so that's why we have like these yeah. like potentially higher values than we actually need because if we were just eating more bioavailable foods we would absorb more of it and not need to eat as like not eat as much um, of the vitamins and minerals, I guess, or as many. Yeah, I think that's true. And one really interesting thing I've learned, it's an example of that is about saturated fat. So you have about 30 trillion cells of saturated, or 30 trillion cells in your body. And the cell walls of all those cells 
are made up largely of saturated fat. So there are something like a million saturated fat molecules per cell. So you have like 30 million trillion molecules of saturated fat in your body at any given time. And you need that in order to survive. And so your body is constantly using saturated fat to replenish your cell walls. And if you're not eating it, then you have to synthesize it within your own body. And so if you're, if you have to synthesize saturated fat, that process uses tons of vitamin K, which is a really important nutrient, um, kind of an underappreciated nutrient, but it leads to vitamin K deficiency, which is one of the things that happens to vegans a lot or people on low fat diets. And it's really problematic for, you know, your immune function and your, uh, your reproductive health and all of this stuff. So saturated fat, I mean, there could be other vitamins implicated too, if you have a deficiency of saturated fat, um, that anytime you're having to synthesize something, you're potentially depleting vitamins and minerals that you're storing already. Yeah, I know that makes a ton of sense. Um, let's jump back then like just to the history of, of pemmican and stuff, because you you brought up the, the Lakota, Lakota, some other tribes and stuff, but like just doing research on the history of it and like, like I don't know, it was really interesting. So do you want to kind of talk about that and um, you know, yeah. let's talk about the history of pemmican? Yeah, so I think the most, the, the place to start with pemmican is that it is ancient. It's like pre-written history. Um, the origin of pemmican and it was kind of a pan North American food. So every region, basically, it seems like had their own version of it. Um, in the Great Plains, it was dried bison and rendered bison. In the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, it was largely fish, salmon. And uh, further east, it would be probably made up of like elk and moose. Um, and so it was like a, a an American, you know, staple essentially, um, and it was first written about and really appreciated in history by uh, fur trappers, mostly fur trappers and explorers in uh, the northern Great Plains, from kind of the Dakotas up through Canada, and um, it was recognized as being sort of the crucial food that allowed these fur trapping expeditions to go much further into the wild to find way more beavers, essentially. So it was a crucial competitive advantage. And there was, um, this led to uh, a fascinating episode in history called the Pemmican War. Uh, so there was a tribe in uh, Saskatchewan, I believe, called the Métis which means mixed and they were half, the people were basically half French and half uh, indigenous and they were sort of the pemmican specialists. So every fall they would have a huge bison hunt and make, you know, tons and tons of pemmican. And then they would sell it to the fur trappers who would take it on their expeditions. And sometimes it was like the only food that they would take, the only thing that they would eat. And, uh, so the, it was the Hudson Bay company that got a monopoly on the Pemmican, or it was the Northwest company, excuse me. The Northwest company was like the up and coming competitor 
in the fur trade and they got a monopoly on the pemmican from the Métis people. And so they were going further in, and getting more beaver hides than the Hudson Bay Company. So the Hudson Bay Company decided to, you know, there's a, it gets really complicated uh, as any war does, but they basically decided to raid the stash of pemmican and steal it because they were getting smoked in business. And so they, they needed the pemmican, they needed access to it. And uh, so that's, that was a sad time of uh, death on account of pemmican. There were a couple battles and I think a few dozen people died, but essentially it was recognized up until essentially the middle of the 20th century as the preeminent expedition food. Uh, so the fur trappers used it in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then the late 19th century, uh, there was a man named Admiral Robert Perry, P-E-A-R-Y, who was the first person to reach the North Pole. And he was an American explorer who wrote a book called Secrets of Polar Travel. And in this book, he says, essentially, the only way they made it to the North Pole was with pemmican. Uh, it was the mainstay of their diet. And it was the only thing that was would keep well enough and was light enough and nutrient dense enough to support really, really rugged travel in really, really harsh environments. And uh, that includes the winter in, you know, the great north, in the great white north. And it also includes the summer in um, in the north, which gets super hot and super humid and just very hard. It's equally hard to deal with and potentially harder to travel because there's less ice in uh, in the summer in the great north. And so uh, it's sort of a centuries long experiment and uh, testimonial to the power of saturated fat and pemmican to sustain uh, rugged exploration in the most intense natural environments possible. Yeah. Have you read the book? I think it's called Nourishing Diets. Um, you know, I've, I've read a little bit of that, but there's also a book by the same author called Nourishing Fats. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which is great. Okay. Because yeah, I think I'm, it's a woman that wrote that book, right? Sally Fallon Morrill. That's Morrill. right. Yeah. yeah. You, you definitely remember names better off the top of your head than I do. Okay. Yeah. A, <laughs> I'm a fan of her work. She's a, uh, she's cool. Yeah. Cause she mentions that in, um, in one of her books and it was really fascinating. These explorers went up there and just basically ate like the Inuit or the Eskimos for so long. And like, at first I think they were kind of concerned, like, Oh, we're not gonna eat any plant material, but it's like, they were totally fine. Just basically eating fat and protein. And it's, it's wild because like modern day people still believe the same thing that you have to have vegetables to be healthy and you have to eat all this stuff. But really like you don't like the Inuit are totally healthy among other tribes too, like native American tribes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And people think of keto diets as like a fad modern thing, but no, it's, it's really ancient and really traditional. Um, it's just, you know, it depends on your natural environment. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense too. Like just practically speaking, like if you're going to go out for an expedition for three months, like you can't carry salad with you. One, it's not like calorically dense by any means. You're not going to absorb much of that's in it. And it's like, it doesn't last and it, it just doesn't make any sense. But if you can have something small, like a, essentially a bar that packs down, or I guess they probably stored it differently, Like you can have a lot more calories and like actually have fat and protein that's going to sustain you versus 
non-nutrient dense, non-bioavailable foods that you're just carrying with you that are a pain in the butt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's why pemmican is worth it because it's complete. It travels really well. It's nutrient dense. It has 185 calories per ounce, which is higher than like a freeze dried mountain house meal. Uh, so even before you rehydrate the freeze dried backpacking food, it's still less nutrient dense than the pemmican. Yeah. And to it's me, that's interesting for like super yeah. light backpackers or something. Yeah, no, like I, that's one reason why I got into it. Like I was saying, is like, well, I guess fascinated by it because it's like, I originally when I was looking for food, it's like, okay, well, I can take these meals at like one, you have to have a stove with you, yeah. which is just something to carry and it adds weight. And then two, it's like most of them are cut with some sort of seed oil. Like even like the quote unquote healthy options, most of them have soybean oil or some other like crappy oil in them. And it's like, yeah. you don't want that, especially if you cut those out from your diet and everyday life. And then suddenly you're introducing seed oils while you're backpacking for three weeks or whatever. Like that, that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Man, the seed oils, it's so hard to get away from them, isn't it? Yeah, dude, they're in freaking everything and it drives me insane. It's, I know, I, it's like hard even just going to a restaurant now. You know? Yeah. Like I basically don't eat out because one, it's it costs like double because I eat so much as a runner. But then two, it's like, I know I'm getting seed oils of some sort. And it's like, at least when I'm at home, I can make something that tastes fine. I can have more and it doesn't have junk in it. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah. And the worst thing about seed oils to me is that like, I've become a bit of a fat evangelist. So people come to me and they're like, oh, you say that like all fat is good for you, actually good for you, right? And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no canola oil, no seed oil, no soybean oil, no corn oil. Like I have to list most of the oils that are in the world today and be like, actually, those are bad for you. But butter, tallow, lard, those are good. You know, that's that's good. The the nutritional staples of our of our traditional ancestors, you know. Yeah, and it's so interesting to see like the correlation there between like seed oils introduced into our diets. So, like in America and say even Mexico, for example, like the obesity rates and chronic disease rates have gone up like just extremely high. And obviously it's correlation, correlation at this point, not necessarily causation. Although I think the data are pretty strong in showing that they do cause these issues. And like, I've spent a bunch of time in Mexico and like, it's interesting to see, like, I don't know, like you go down to the grocery store and this have aisles of canola oil. And it's like, it's heart healthy. It's good for this. It's good for that. And then it's like, everybody's obese there as well. So it's not even really like, I like this like financial thing. It's like, people in America, which is a very wealthy country for the most part, like are obese and like people in Mexico, which is historically kind of like, I don't know, slightly more impoverished country are also obese. So it's like these seed oils are clearly causing an issue where if, as if we went back to like butter and tallow, like you're saying, we'd just be a lot healthier, but like we're so turned off by it, I think because of all these governmental pushes to, to not um, consume fats, these healthy fats. Yeah. I think it's, I'd say it's probably the, the most consequential medical lie in history nutritional misconception in history because if you think about where americans were 110 years ago there was so much cream and butter and milk and tallow and lard in the diet and there was no heart disease and heart disease is the number one killer and so suddenly you demonize the food that your ancestors lived on so that was a staple of your ancestors diet and switch to this brand new 
industrial food and then market it to everyone as the healthier alternative, even while it's causing these crazy diseases that are unheard of before and chronic inflammation. And this goes on, it's still going on. I, you know, in my circle, I, you know, I'm always talking about this stuff. So I tend to sort of be around people who get it, who don't buy canola oil. And, you know, if they go out to eat, they're like, what, what oil is this fried in? You know, they're, they're thinking about it and they're avoiding these seed oils. But I forget that that's really rare. I think 95% of people are still saying, are still assuming and agreeing with this propaganda that saturated fat, animal fat is bad for you. It's going to, it's going to clog your arteries. I still have relatives who, if I, if we like have a steak with like potatoes and gravy or something like that, they're like, oh, this is a big artery clogger. I'm like, no, it's really not. It's, it's actually not. Um, and then they don't believe me because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> you know, it's like all of this, uh, this argument from authority a hundred years on, it's still hypnotizing people, which is really sad. Yeah. And I, I get the same stuff too, from people it's like in the, like the running world, it's like, okay, we'll eat more vegetables, eat more carbs, eat more of this and like limit your protein. It's like, okay, well, like my injury rate's pretty dang low compared to a lot of people. And like, I eat a very meat heavy diet and a fat heavy diet. And it's like, it, it just, I don't know, it, it kind of blows my mind. Cause I do get stuck in that little, um, like in my bubble as well, of people that eat the way that I do, or as yeah. we do, I should say, cause it's like, and then we just kind of assume that everyone thinks that way. And then you go to the grocery store and you see people just like, I'm going to put canola oil in my cart and hungry men, TV dinners or whatever they're called, like all this crap in there because it's quote unquote healthy. But like you can see just visually that like, they're not healthy. And and it's wild that we still, we still believe this stuff that are just, it's like, it's clearly not true. Yeah. It's clear to us. It's clear to people who approach it with a, or try to approach it with a more objective, unbiased um, and they, then they test it out. You know, if you test it, then you'll figure it out. Like, I don't think it's good for some people and not good for other people. I think it's pretty universal. You know, every human being should not be eating seed oils and should be eating animal fats. <laughs> I think it's, I can make that state. I would make that blanket statement without batting an eye for sure. Totally. And I think we could like, probably like, I have a discussion about like genetics and like, Oh, should this, whatever like should people with these genes eat this type of food and whatever like yeah. equatorial people versus say like the inuit or something but like when it comes down to it cereals are just like they're just a machine lubricant that are terrible for you and are not meant for human consumption like this is it's just yeah. a fact <laughs> yeah yeah i mean no matter where no matter what ethnicity you are you should be eating food and you should not be eating not food yeah <laughs> that, that, that's a good way to put it <laughs> Um, actually speaking of equatorial people, there's another important part of like the whole history of pemmican and actually keto and carnivore diets in general, which is this book called the fat of the land by Vilhjalmer Stephenson. And, uh, if you haven't heard of it, I would highly recommend it. It's this guy, he was an anthropologist. I think he was trained at like Columbia university. And then he ended up living with the Inuit for, I think, 10 years, way up in northern Canada, and was eating what they ate. He ended up eating 
for five years, I think he ate like only fish, <laughs> which is what they did. And it was only actually only boiled fish. It was one type of fish, uh, one type of fish cooked one way. And they ate that for five years straight. And he was like, it was the best culinary experience of my life. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> uh, right. It, it sounds awful, but he loved it. And, and he, he wrote, he waxed eloquent about it. Um, and, you know, this is how those people live for centuries. But anyways, he came back to academia and people were like, we don't believe you. You need vegetables. You need fruit. Like you're, you're obviously lying. These Inuit people obviously had orange juice <laughs> and like kale, you know, <laughs> like as if they would. And then, uh, so in order to back up his, his own experience, he and a friend decided to enroll in a hospital in New York city for two years, eating only meat and undergoing like rigorous medical analysis, like every two weeks living in this hospital and they were getting their blood tested all the time. They were getting all their vitals checked and uh, it took them a little while to like dial in the carnivore diet, but they eventually settled on um, something which is basically the same. Uh, so they, they basically settled on eating the equivalent of a ribeye steak always. And a ribeye steak in terms of the combo of fat and protein is actually the same as pemmican. Um, there's the same, it's, it's in one ounce of pemmican, there's about 10 grams of protein and 15 grams of fat. And if you rehydrated the pemmican uh, into a ribeye, it would be that same ratio of protein and fat. Um, and so I think it comes out to the, keto ideal, which is like 75 to 80% of your calories coming from fat. And so they did that for two years. And like <clears throat> the guy who he was with, uh, had, he had like dental problems and his hair was falling out and his, like his hair started growing back and his teeth were white and like, you know, and they got into great health again <clears throat> and they were both just thriving after two years on this carnivore diet in a medical setting. Um, but that research pretty much got buried. That was in the twenties. So it's, it's just, uh, ignored. Um, and it's sad, but another thing that this guy, the reason I, I went off on that tangent was because you mentioned, uh, like tropical people and this guy, Wilhelm, Vilhjalmer Stefansson, he's Icelandic in origin. That's, uh, that's why it's the hard name. Uh, he also went on anthropological expeditions down in South America. And he was on like canoe trips in the Amazon. And he said that if you were tasked with bringing the provisions, the natives there would revolt if there wasn't enough fat. They would just straight up go home. They would quit. And that was the, there was like their only requirement, you know, you could, they like paid them very little. They like, they didn't really matter exactly what kind of food you brought. It was just the question of, is there enough fat? And so these are tropical people living in equatorial Amazonia and their main priority nutritionally is fat. 
And so it sort of, it dispels this, this myth that fat is for cold places. Fat is for the North fat is for hot places too. Fat is like the, I'd say the most important nutrient for humanity, like around the world. And it's, uh, it's also, if you look at nature, the, uh, it's the surplus nutrient. It's the reward nutrient. Like the, the only way you're going to get fat in nature is if there's more energy in that system. If the energy is building and growing in that system and it's not being depleted. So a healthy plant actually produces fat, healthy grass. There's different levels of, I used to be a grass farmer. Do you mind if I go on this little tangent? Oh, go for it. This is interesting. Okay, Okay, cool. So I, I've uh, raised a lot of cattle on grass, grazing them on grass and done research into the nutritional profiles of uh, different types of pasture. And so if you look at um, sort of pasture in a, in a less healthy soil, the nutrition in the grass is mostly sugar. Okay. That's sort of the energy that's in the grass. And then as the soil gets healthier and the grass has more of a nutritional surplus and has, um, it's just a healthier organism, then you end up with more protein to balance out those sugars. So it's really good animal feed, but then when the grass gets optimally healthy and the soil is really dialed in, you're grazing it right for many years, then the grass actually starts producing fat within itself. And so you have fat grass and the cows that eat this absolutely glow. <laughs> they shine basically. And so the, the fat comes from a thriving organism essentially. Um, and there are ways to make, take shortcuts. You know, if you go to a feedlot in uh, an industrial cattle feedlot or hog, hog factory farm, you can create fat with unhealthy animals, but in the natural context, fat is the, it's like both the result and the cause of health. So it's the ultimate energy storage uh, mechanism in nature overall. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that grass could have some sort of fat in it. I just always assumed it was just kind of like cellulose and fiber. Well, it's a lot of that. Yeah. We can't eat that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We have the cows as our uh, extended digestive system. Yeah, because how many stomachs do cows have? They have a couple, right, to ferment the grass and stuff? They have four, yeah. The main one is called the rumen. And the rumen is essentially a compost uh, pile (laughs) or a compost uh, machine. They have something like dozens, three dozen different species of microbes in there it might be way more it might be like hundreds of species of microbes in there that tag team basically the the cellulose and that fiber and the grass and break it down oh, that's interesting something i was thinking about when you're talking about um those guys that just went meat only and the guys um his hair started growing back and then his teeth got better and wider uh, i was watching a documentary on twitter the other night and um they're in africa it's funny to say that I was watching it on Twitter, but it was a full-length doc on Twitter. Um, so it was kind of interesting to watch it there. But like they're interviewing people, and I think it was the Maasai people, and they live in Africa, and they're just they weren't even talking about nutrition at all, but like it was something completely different. But what I was noticing was 
all the people are super healthy. Their skin was very clean and glowy. And then all their teeth were just like bright white. And then I was just thinking about how like, just, I don't know, like just everybody here, like no matter where you are, I guess, in like modern, like developed countries or whatever, if you want to say that, like everybody has dental issues all the time. Like you have to brush your teeth every night. And I'm assuming these people don't necessarily have like, like what we would call a proper dental hygiene routine. Like they're probably not brushing their teeth multiple times a day. They're not flossing. They're not using mouthwash and all these things. Like they're just eating a lot of like animal products. And that's one thing that they mentioned is like, yeah, we like, they're just cutting apart like a, was it like a goat or something? I don't remember exactly what it was and eating it. And I was like, that's pretty fascinating that like they're like, we assume that we're so smart. We've like progressed so much, but then really like the basic things are keeping these people healthy. And like, they're not going to the dentist twice a year to get their teeth cleaned and fillings and stuff. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. Super interesting. There's a book. Uh, what's the name of the book? There's an author called Weston A. Price, um, who was a dentist and he went around the world looking at, you know, Maasai teeth and different indigenous cultures, teeth, and basically determined that those traditional diets, uh, are what cause oral health. And it's not about brushing your teeth. (laughs) It's about not eating seed oils mostly. (laughs) And to some degree, refined sugars also, um, which I think are kind of less of a, less of a culprit than people often think, but uh, refined sugars and seed oils are dreadful for sure. Yeah. And that that's kind of a hard thing. Like in my, my world, I guess, of like cycling and running and stuff and backpacking too, is like people just eat so much sugar all the time. It's like, I'm going on a five mile run. I need to have a gel. It's like, this is straight sugar. And like you get back from your run. It's like, well, I'm going to have a sandwich and I'm going to have like whatever this deep fried like chimichanga or whatever and it's like it is this bunch of like just crap it's not even real food and then we see those negative repercussions and people try to act like oh i I ran today i rode my bike so i can eat and drink whatever i want it's like that's not necessarily true like you're still putting crap into your body which is a poison so like if you want to maximize your health and maximize your your workout like why would you want to damage it by eating not real food yeah yeah exactly and it's especially interesting in the realm of endurance exercise because sugar is so quick. It hits and then it's gone. You go through that gel running, what, like a mile and a half, two miles? Yeah, like it might even. make you feel okay, but it's, it's, it's there and gone. Whereas fat and especially being in ketosis, I think, is really conducive to like steady energy that lasts for hours and hours and hours. And when I was eating only pemmican for a month. I, I think I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, I had to basically measure out my food by weight in order to not lose weight because I had so much energy. I wasn't hungry at all. And I could go and run and run and hike and hike and have absolutely no problem. So the fat, yeah, the fat is really the obvious choice for endurance feats of endurance and stamina. Yeah, totally. And especially I think more of like, like self-supported things, like say you're backpacking or whatever you're carrying like multiple days worth of food with you. It's like, you're saying like you get more nutrition out of like say a pemmican bar than you would out of a mountain house meal or these kind of like hyper processed foods that are just barely even food. And, right. and it was interesting that we're talking about this now. I didn't even think about this, but a couple of weeks ago um, on another show, we interviewed this guy from South Africa. Like he's a big cyclist, puts in a lot of volume. 
on his bike. And um, he's basically carnivore. Like he doesn't really eat carbs at all. And he's able to do these like massive rides on nothing, essentially. Like he might have some coffee and cream or whatever. And like he's just taking electrolytes and salt and whatever the entire time. But he's not crushing 100 grams of carbs an hour. He's going zero carbs an hour. And people just don't believe that it's possible. And he's even done it like on a, a bike trainer where he just sit there on the rollers and just pedals his bike for hours and hours and hours. And people are blown away because like you look at like Tour de France and like Ironman and even ultra running, people try to push like 90 grams of carbs an hour to perform where he's like, you don't have to do that. Like one, it's like hard on your wallet to be buying that much food all the time. But then like, yeah. if you can just go on, on fat and protein, like why wouldn't you do that versus having to like suck down sugar all day? Yeah. Yeah. And plus your body's working to digest that sugar too. Right. It, it yeah. Kind of, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. I guess it would take effort away from your muscles that could be used yeah. for your muscles. And like, it's funny cause like gastric issues are such a big part of running and cycling and stuff that people just kind of think it's normal. Like I went for a run and I had to, I had to go to the bathroom twice in my 20 mile run or something. But like, once you clean up your diet, like you don't have to do that. You can just actually go and run. You're not worried about getting nauseous all the time because you're not jamming that many carbohydrates into your body. It's just, mm -hmm. I guess your gut heals as well. Yeah. Yeah. Your gut heals. And, um, I had a really, well, can I talk about that 30 days eating only pemmican and from the, from the bath, going to the bathroom perspective? Yeah, let's definitely talk about that. Cause I've heard stories, not necessarily about you, but just in general. <laughs> okay. Cause it was, uh, the main question people ask me when I tell them that I ate only pemmican for 30 days is like, were you backed up? You know, were you like, what was that like? And my reply is actually, it was the best uh, defecatory experience of my life that whole month. Like once I was in ketosis, it was so, uh, <laughs> it was so simple basically. And like, and, uh, the least unpleasant that it's ever been. And I started thinking, and I think a lot of uh, stool matter is made up of dead bacteria, which is why it smells so repugnant. And the, the dead bacteria comes from eating plant matter that can only be broken down by bacteria, you know? Um, and so when you're eating plants, you're feeding these massive colonies of bacteria in your intestines that help break it down and they help nourish you and basically make the plants into food for you. But when you're eating meat, uh, they die <laughs> because those bacteria are, uh, they're herbivores basically. And so that's part of, I think that's part of the, the difficulty of like switching into a carnivore diet is you have these massive bacterial die-offs, but once that's over, then your stool is, hardly anything <laughs> it's hardly anything and it's rare it was like uh yeah it was like every every day maybe every two days um that was sort of the rhythm of it and it was small and quick and i didn't need toilet paper yeah that's interesting because i think a lot of people are assuming that, like you have to eat a bunch of fiber to be able to go to the bathroom but like really yeah, you don't no no definitely didn't um and yeah, people like to think of the inter interior of your body in a mechanical way. So they think of your arteries as like these pipes that get, you know, clogged. And they think of your intestines as these pipes that like the 
the fiber needs to scrape them clean in order to get things out. But it's like, that's, they're not pipes, <laughs> you know, they're super intricate uh, organs, you know, they're, they're going to do it. They're going to get things out if you take good care of them, you know? Don't. Yeah, the body's a lot more complicated than like a sewage pipe or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, there's no comparison. It's, I mean, the body's a miracle. Just the fact of going into ketosis is a miracle too. I mean, every every one of those 30 trillion or whatever mitochondria you have switches over completely. That's that's unbelievable to me. I, I mean, it's amazing the, the flexibility and the versatility that our bodies exhibit when it comes to diet yeah i think about that a lot like diet and just humans in general like how versatile and like maybe versatile is not the right word but like how unique every other population in the world can be where like we can all live on thrive on almost like different diets and things as long as we're healthy but it's like oh this is fascinating to me like what the body can do and like well we probably don't even realize like the full potential of like what our bodies can do like it's just it's pretty oh, yeah. wild 100 percent. Yeah. yeah i've never I've never, I, I've had moments where I was like pushing past what I thought were my limits, but I've never really gotten close to what I think are my actual limits. You know, I think about yeah. like, uh, you know, like the battle of the battle of marathon in ancient Greece, where those guys, I think it was two guys, or maybe it was one guy just ran a marathon and he, I don't think he was training. People didn't go jogging back then. You know, but he was like, oh, okay, we're under attack. I'm going to go run 26 miles because I have to, you know, and the body can just, can just make it work, you know? Yeah. That stuff is amazing. And I, uh, I want to push it this summer. I'm planning a trip. I don't have a permit yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to hike the John Muir trail, uh, eating only pemmican. Dude, that'd be awesome. It'd be yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. And I, I would like to do the, the whole PCT, but I, I can't really spare five months. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the issue with these long trails, especially when you're starting the company, right? Like you have so much going on you can't take five months off to yeah. go walk. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I wish I could. I've, I've done big sections of the PCT here in Oregon and in Washington as well. And it's always been enticing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Let's go, going back a little bit to like digestive issues and stuff. Like people always assume that. Like, listen to Rogan one time, and he was talking about that. Where like he he does like a carnivore month or something. I don't remember when it is, like January or something. He said like, yeah, the first few days were rough, but like once you get kind of past those first few days and your microbiome adjusts, you just feel good and strong, and it's it's really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's. I know people who tried to do a keto thing and then quit on like day three because they were exhausted or whatever. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's, it's the worst time to quit. You know, <laughs> that's, you're right on the edge of being good again. You know? Yeah. You're essentially suffering for three days to not feel the benefits. It's right. like, you might as well just go on one extra day and actually feel good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I heard, uh, on that, on that subject, I heard something really wise a couple of days ago. It was from an old timer from Maine. I was at a, a, a natural building workshop and this, there was this old guy from Maine who had a really a nice little aphorism on this topic. And he said, it seems farther than it really is, but once you get there, you realize that it wasn't. So 
when you're on your way to ketosis or you're on the Grand Canyon running up to the rim, it seems really far. It seems farther than it is. But then once you get there, you look back and you're like, oh, that was easy. That was just a few miles. That was just a couple of days. You know, that was nothing. So if you can keep that feeling in mind of like looking back on it while you're doing it, then you can push through it and be like, oh, it's, it seems farther than it is. Yeah, like that's actually like the mental fortitude or just, I don't know, maybe setting like mental goals, like short-term goals on the way to a long-term goal. Like to me, this is very beneficial. Like, like when I race and stuff, it's like, I'm always like, okay, the next aid station is five miles. And the next one after that is seven versus thinking I have to run 50 miles today. It's like, okay, you just do like short-term girls. Like that's goals. It's only an hour. It's only an hour, 10 or so to this next spot versus thinking like, oh crap, I'm gonna be out here for eight hours. Like that's a long time <laughs> or whatever it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. Break it down into chunks. Break it down. Yeah. So I think this is beneficial. Like you're saying, like with, with health too, it's like this short or set short-term goals. Like, okay, like today I'm going to go zero carb until noon and then maybe until two and then until four. And then eventually you can go like just total keto for the entire day. And then you can continue doing that and just setting more and more goals. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good practice. I like that. Yeah. So let's, um, let's kind of talk about like modern day pemmican because obviously you guys aren't like out hunting bison and stuff out in the prairie. And then, I don't know, putting it together and sealing it up with wax for the winter. So like, what are you guys doing as far as your company to, to create your product? And then like, what kind of modern spins have you put on it? Well, we want it to be kind of close to that, the original bison pemmican. And so I'm really focused on grass fed beef. Um, uh, I think there's a couple benefits to that. One is for the land, the, the, the most efficient way to produce calories and especially protein on earth is to graze cattle on grass, especially if you manage them properly and you take good care of the soil. So that's been a big passion of mine for eight years. And actually one of the reasons I started the Pemmican company is because we, I was working on a farm and we had lots of extra uh, beef fat and pork fat in our freezers that people weren't buying because they, you know, they're afraid of animal fat and slash, or it's difficult to process that stuff. It's, uh, it's, it, it's messy. It's greasy. So after you render a batch of lard or tallow, it's like the cleanup is the hardest part by far. Um, so I had the idea of this is a surplus in the food system, you know, and it's the best part. <laughs> it's the best part of the food system and people aren't buying it. And so I wanted to make it into a convenient product that added value for people without them having to go through those steps. So steadfast, I'd like to say steadfast provisions was born on a farm basically. And so that's our roots is really connected to the land and connected to animals grazing. Um, and so a lot of the beef, about half of the beef that's gone into the pemmican that we produced so far this year came from cows that I raised last year. Um, and then the other half, which will be a higher proportion going forward is from a grass fed ranch out in central Oregon in Madras, um, called Oregonic beef company. And they, um, I went out and visited, it's a gorgeous area out there in Madras and they, they take really good care of their animals and kind of rotate them around, uh, I think like 3000 acres of, um, kind of high desert grassland with some irrigated land and then some uh, BLM land as well. But they have really good grazing practices and it's a solid family business 
you know, really focused on taking good care of the land for their descendants and uh, producing super high quality beef. I've had a lot of beef and this is really, really good stuff. There's like a terroir of flavor in the beef from the way that they're grazed. Um, so in that sense, it's nutritionally probably quite similar to the bison pemmican from uh, the 19th century. And the grass fed is also important for the fat because the, uh, the fat that an animal eats will largely determine the type of fat that they store. So if you are feeding corn and soy to a cow, a lot of their fat will be polyunsaturated, PUFA fats. Um, but if a cow is eating only grass, then there's a much higher percentage of saturated fat. Uh, and it's better for pemmican and better for your diet. And so that's why I focus on grass-fed tallow and meat. Um, and so we have a few different versions of pemmican. This is the salted version. This is a brick here and it's beef tallow salt. Those are the only ingredients. It's kind of the, the lion diet version, like the Peterson's. And then I have a more modern version, which is a seasoned one. Um, and tall beef, tallow, honey, onion, garlic, salt, and pepper. So it has seasoning. The honey is negligible. It doesn't taste sweet at all. It's just sort of to add a little bit of a balance. Um, and this is really good. This is what I recommend to people who are not already kind of fat nerds and haven't had pemmican before because uh, eating a lot of tallow is and beefy. Um, so for pemmican newbies, the seasoned is definitely the way to start. For myself, I kind of prefer the salted. And when I did, actually when I did um, the month of eating only pemmican, I have another version which is totally unseasoned, which is just dried beef and fat. And that's what I ended up eating for 30 days um, because there's something about the electrolyte ratio when you add a bunch of sodium that like threw me off. So I did, I did three weeks eating the salted version first and I was kind of slightly dehydrated the whole time. And then I ate the unseasoned version for a month and I wasn't dehydrated at all the entire time. I felt great and I was exercising a lot. And so there's something about like the ratio of magnesium, potassium and sodium that works when you're eating meat without salt. I don't know the science of it, but that was my experience and it was awesome. So those are the three types of uh, beef based or tallow based pemmican that we have now. And then I also, I don't have one with me here, but I have uh, pemmican spread, which is instead of tallow, it has pork lard, which is less saturated and uh, is softer. So that's kind of a, the least traditional pemmican that we have is, is this one made with pork lard and it's spreadable on toast, or you can mix it in with rice and beans or eat it with a spoon on its own. It's really good. It's actually, like I was saying before we started recording, it's my kind of uh, my personal favorite, just as far as flavor. Um, there's something about pork lard, which is more delicious than beef tallow. And I, I think it's slightly less healthy, but it's definitely more delicious. And so we make that as well. 
And then we also sell tallow. And we're working on a version um, of the tallow based pemmican that will have significantly more honey and dried blueberries in it. So if there's somebody who wants to be high fat, but not like fully keto, then that would be a good option too. Let's talk a little bit about that because like adding things to it, because when I was like doing some research and stuff, it seems like that's more of like a, like how the Europeans made it more palatable, right? They started adding types of berries and different things into it to make it not just meat and fat, right? Yeah, I think so. I think generally the native way was super simple, meat and fat (laughs) and no salt. That was the biggest change that the Europeans made was adding salt because the European palate and our modern palate was like, wait, meat without salt, that's an abomination, you know? Um, Which I kind of used to agree until like day two of eating unseasoned pemmican. And then something pretty amazing happened. I, uh, my whole like sense of taste changed once I took salt out of the equation and I started tasting like little, I was like a beef sommelier. I started noticing little notes of like subtle sweetness and stuff in the beef. And it was the strangest experience. It was like uh, a sensory deprivation experience that heightened my sense. So I took salt out and then my taste became so much more uh, subtle and fine. And by the end of the 30 days eating only the unseasoned pemmican, I was like, this is the best taste experience every time it's so good and this is all i want it's really all i want the only reason i stopped after 30 days was because i was on the road and i ran out of pemmican but it was it was amazing the unsalted version and so the the europeans added salt they also added fruit i do think there are probably some tribes that already mixed in fruit um like choke cherries or saskatoon berries um and and now of course the word pemmican is sort of adulterated and there's a product that REI sells, which is just like fruits and nuts and they call it pemmican. Um, there's like no animal fat in it at all. So that's kind of sad. Um, but yeah, the, the simplest and I think best version is just meat and fat. That's it. That's interesting. Did you have any sort of like, like cramping issues and stuff? Cause I know when I go like zero carb, like if I don't increase my sodium a lot, like personally, I have a lot of cramping issues and just my legs, especially, did you ever experience that? No, I didn't. I, I didn't have any issues at all. <laughs> actually, everything was really good. Um, the only, I actually had, uh, it was my first time going into ketosis when I first did three weeks eating pemmican and I was eating the salted version and I ended up being dehydrated a lot and I was, I wasn't cramping, but I was drinking. Um, and even though I did have a decent amount of sodium and I also took, um, for the first week I took the keto chow, which is like, a that electrolyte stuff. Uh, and that helped a bit, but I was struggling. It was, I, I did much better without, any added salt, which hmm. is weird to me, but yeah, yeah, that kind of flies in the face of like what every, like, I don't know, keto person says, it's like, oh, you got up your electrolytes to avoid keto flu and whatever. And here you are yeah, not having those issues. It's really interesting. 
Yeah, and maybe maybe it was like a transition thing. Like when you're going into ketosis, maybe you do want you know all that stuff also. But then once yeah. you're in it, maybe you you kind of your body can chill out and deal with it. Um, I don't know. I guess there's different schools of thought on salt as far as a an ancestral diet or a paleo or hunter gatherer diet or whatever you want to call it because. According to Stephenson, the Inuit never ate salt. Like all the sodium in their diet came from um, the fish. There's sodium in meat. There's sodium in animal flesh. And if you look at animal muscle, it's going to have the same, like beef muscle is going to have the same electrolyte ratios as our muscle. So you're going to have the same proportions of uh, potassium, magnesium, sodium. That's my theory about why it works, but I don't know. I, it's, it's complicated. So. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure like genetics play a role in that as well. Cause like, um, I, I did a, a sweat test like a month or so ago where like I had my sweat measure to see my sodium concentration in it. Oh, interesting. And like, I'm a pretty heavy sweater, but then like I, I sweat about like, it was like 1200 milligrams per liter but then they were saying that some people do like 200 milligrams and others are like at 2000 milligrams. Wow. And it was like a genetic thing. So it was really fascinating. Cause like, once I did that, it, it helped my cramping issues on my runs. Right. But then like, like my girlfriend, for example, like has never even thought about adding salt on her runs. So she doesn't have to worry about it. And here I am just like, I finished a run. Like I have photos from the grand Canyon last week where like my shorts are just covered in salt, like crusty. <laughs> then everyone else I ran with was like totally normal. And I'm like, this is so yeah. strange. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it, I always get that on my hats too, right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's wild. That's such a huge difference. Twelve hundred to two hundred. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. But you're yeah. kind of making uh, making me want to do like a whole month of pemmican or just pure carnivore for a month because like I've tried it for a few days, but I've never gotten more than that. So like a full yeah. month would be interesting to see like how I would feel afterwards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was great for me. I I don't. I think for me, the jury's still out on like, whether it's the best thing long-term. Mm -hmm. um, but I, in order to say that pemmican is complete, which is based on lots of historical testimony, I needed to prove it myself. I needed to put my mouth where my money is, you know, and say, I, I, I need to try a month. And I feel like a month is a good length of time to, to prove the concept. And I definitely felt like I could have kept going. So it's fun. Yeah. It's, fun. No, it's, it's easy. And it's, it's like so simple, you know, the only, the hardest part was social situations, like meeting people for dinner or whatever and being like, yeah, sorry. I'm just, I'm just eating my little bar. <laughs> you pull out a brick of pemmican at like at a restaurant to start slicing pieces off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There were a couple of times where I sort of cheated and had like a ribeye, you know, if I went out to dinner with someone, I would be like, Hey, can I get a yeah. ribeye with no salt kind of thing? And then I yeah. also had a little bit of whiskey and I drank coffee pretty much every day. So <laughs> I was cheating, but I think that those are what, uh, the fur trappers would have been eating anyway. Also whiskey and coffee. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, speaking of that, I know like, we're about to wrap up here, but like, how did the whiskey affect you when you were basically, you were just zero carb for a month? Like, did it hit you harder than it normally would? Like, I'm just curious. Well, I didn't drink much. Um, I, I wasn't like getting drunk. So 
It was just like maybe two, two whiskeys. Okay. We had a good time. <laughs> it, it wasn't like I was knocked over by it or something. Yeah, that's probably smart. Uh, well, cool, man. Like, I think it's this whole, like, um, I don't know, like kind of N equals one stuff with, with ancient diets kind of making a comeback is really fascinating. Like, it's cool to see people experimenting and, and bringing back the old ways of stuff. Cause like, I think people were a lot stronger and healthier and in, in general, just a lot tougher back then. And maybe that's just me like idealizing things, but like makes a lot of sense. Like clearly people wouldn't be obese 200 years ago and surviving. So it, it, it's cool to see people bringing stuff back like your company and um, yeah, kind of changing the narrative on nutrition. Yeah. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. And maybe I can end with like one anecdote on that exact topic that you brought up, which is the pemmican in the 19th century used to be stored in a 90 pound uh, pillowcase made of bison rawhide. And that was called a piece of pemmican. And every voyager on a fur trapping expedition was expected to be able to carry at least one piece of pemmican through these nightmarish conditions in the far north. Um, and so there were guys who could carry two pieces or even three, they say three pieces, which is 270 pounds. And that's not like justified weight on your hips, like a modern backpack that's like slung over your shoulder. And they were trekking like, you know, 15 miles in the humid Arctic summer. And so I read about that. I read about those people and I'm like, we are so, <laughs> we're so lost. We're so weak, <laughs> you know? And I think that we have a chance to re, to re-obtain that level of strength and vitality. And it might take a couple of generations, but you know, we're working on it. Yeah, it's just incremental progress, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just to wrap up then, like that, one, this is wild to think of carrying that much weight. Like, I don't even like to hike with a backpack on, much less <laughs> <laughs> basically just bags of meat on my back. But um, uh, where can people find your uh, guys' company and, and check you out? Yeah, check it out. Steadfastprovisions.com is the site. And cool. we're on there and uh, we can make a discount code. Let's let's do it. Let's. What should the discount code be? Something easy. Let's see. What, what would be a good discount code? um what's the name of your rooster Ju was it juniper, juniper yeah you have yeah how about just juniper cool that works for me okay cool we'll do uh 15 off code for juniper sweet man yeah let's do that that'd be awesome yeah, yeah. yeah. um thanks for doing that I'm, I'm excited to try the product like just to see how it feels and like you're saying i don't know if we're recording or not but just saying how it feels like almost nothing in your stomach in a good way instead of feeling heavy yeah. and weighed down so it'd be interesting to try yeah yeah man let me know. Let me know if you enjoy it and we'll get you some more. Yeah, definitely. So cool though. Um, well, thanks, man. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here and um, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Derek. Good meeting you. Yeah, you too. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.